The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 114. When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. The sea saw it and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the little hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you fled? O Jordan, that you turned back. O mountains, that you skipped like rams. O little hills like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of waters. Oops, I guess I got to read my sermon text today. We're going to be in Numbers chapter 14, and we're going to be in verses 26 through 45. Verse 26, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who are numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and bear the brunt of your infidelity, until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land forty days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely forty years, and you shall know my rejection. I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall be consumed, and there they shall die. Now the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report of the land... Those very men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive of the men who went to spy out the land. Verse 39, Then Moses told these words to all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the top of the mountain, saying, Here we are, and we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. And Moses said, Now why do you transgress the command of the Lord? For this will not succeed. Do not go up, lest you be defeated by your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you have turned away from the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the mountaintop. Nevertheless, neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed from the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountain came down and attacked them and drove them back as far as Hormah. This is entitled, A Year for Each Day, Part 3. In the passage today, we should once again be reminded of the context. 
The people are in the wilderness, even the wilderness of Paran, meaning glorious. They had seen the marvels of the Lord all the way to Sinai. They had seen the marvels of the Lord at Sinai. They had been given the law. They had been ensured that they would receive the land of promise, and they had been given manna every single day since shortly after leaving Egypt. In fact, in today's passage, they will see a true miracle in the striking of 10 of the 12 spies who went into Canaan. And all of this time, they continued to eat manna. In fact, verse 40 shows us that the people rose early in the morning in order to be disobedient to the Lord once again, and yet there is no doubt that they first sat down to a meal of manna. Despite being in the wilderness with a population larger than most cities, they had enough water to sustain them, and they had enough manna to feed them for three meals every day, seven days a week. The utter stupidity of people who would be so well cared for and who would then distrust the very source of their daily sustenance is almost too incredible to imagine. But we, meaning the world in general, are no different. No, not in the least. Our text verse comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's verses 1 through 5. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness." The world at large loves to deny that there is a God, or they attempt to deify the creation so that we don't need a God that is transcendent. But both of those are logically inconsistent. If the universe is God, then the universe would have no beginning. If there was no beginning, we could not be right here, right now. There would always be an infinite regress to time, and there could be no right now. If the universe had a beginning, then it is a contingent being, meaning that it is dependent on its existence for both being here and continuing to be here. In other words, it needs a sustainer with a capital S, just like the one who sustained Israel with their manna every morning. The people were sustained, and yet they failed to believe their sustainer. We are logically and inescapably being sustained, and yet we fail to believe our sustainer. No, we are no different than Israel. We mock them because of their failure to believe, and yet we fail to believe in varying degrees ourselves. If we accept evolution, then we deny creation. If we accept creation, but we deny the account as is given in his word, then we don't believe his word. Or we pretend we do by making excuses about what it actually says. But an excuse is merely an attempt to hide disbelief. If we say that we believe in eternal life because of Christ, but then we fear death, we are failing to truly and wholly believe in eternal life. This isn't a maybe, it's a fact. At what point does our faith begin to falter? Faith is what we will be rewarded for. Even our deeds have to be done in faith or they are faithless deeds. No reward for you. One thing is certain, the more we hold to the word, the more we cherish the person and the work of Jesus Christ and the more we simply exist in him, forgetting about all other things which weigh us down, and the more our faith will grow. Everyone is on a different level, but everyone should be going up in their faith level from day to day. 
The surest way to do this is to get self out of the way. Anytime self gets introduced into the equation, faith is excluded. Let us keep our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. These things are revealed once again in today's passage. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got just two thoughts for you today. The first is, your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness. It's verses 26 through 38. Verse 26, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, in verse 14 too, the whole congregation is said to have spoken against Moses and Aaron. In verse 14, five, it said that Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. In verse 14, 11, the Lord spoke to Moses directly. And in verse 14, 13, Moses responded to the Lord with his petition. After that, the Lord responded to Moses' petition in verse 14, 22. With that behind them, it now says that the Lord spoke to both Moses and Aaron. It appears from this that all of the verses have occurred right in front of the congregation. Either Moses and Aaron were both on their faces, or Moses went into the tabernacle to hear the Lord, while Aaron remained humbled before the Lord. In other words, the glory of the Lord appearing in the tent of meeting, the Lord's anger at the people, and Moses' petition on behalf of the people have been accomplished in the sight and in the hearing of the people. This is why both Moses and Aaron are addressed here in this verse. Whether the people heard the voice of the Lord or not, they have seen the events unfold. The Lord speaks to both because both are in leadership positions. The words to them are, verse 27, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? The Hebrew here is deliberately broken, showing the anger of the Lord. It reads, How long for congregation, the evil, the this? It thus forms an aposiopesis where the intent has to be inferred. And the inference is, How long shall I put up with this? And the reason is that it is me that they are complaining against. Verse 27 continues, I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. In one verse, the word ally or against me is stated twice. It was Moses and Aaron who were about to be stoned in verse 10. In that same verse, the Lord appeared. The Lord is tying the actions of the people against Moses and Aaron directly into an attack against him. This is why the question is asked of them. In essence, he is asking this not only on his behalf, but on theirs. He also uses the word teluna, meaning to mumble or to murmur. It is used nine times in scripture. All of them are in Exodus and Numbers, and all are concerning the murmuring of the Israelites. Each time, it is an offense against the Lord in which the murmuring occurs. As Moses and Aaron in position picture Christ, the lawgiver, prophet, and high priest of the covenant, we can see how speaking against Christ is to be treated as a direct attack against God. He represents the Godhead just as Moses and Aaron here represent the Lord. Verse 28, say to them, as I live, says the Lord. Because of the people's words and actions against Moses and Aaron, which are considered a direct attack against the Lord himself, he now speaks out words of prophecy. The Hebrew says, Chai ani neum Yehovah. Live I, utters Yehovah. It is a word used just once so far in the entire Bible, neum. In Genesis 22, verse 16, after Abraham had proven his faithfulness to the Lord, he made a solemn utterance of promise. 
The word comes from Naam, which means a prophecy. Thus, an oracle from the Lord is now forthcoming. Verse 28 continues, Just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The Hebrew actually carries a negative particle, which makes the words more exciting than whatever version you are reading. Literally, it reads, If not, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so will I do to you. The obvious question is, what have the people spoken in his hearing? The answer is that of verse 2. If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. The Lord had redeemed them from Egypt, and there was no way he was going to unredeem them. But he would also not let them go into the land that they were unwilling to enter through their faithlessness. And so he grants them the one request that is suitable to their evil speaking against him. Of all of the translations of this verse, the one that most closely reflects the sense of the Hebrew is given by Robert Young. He says, Say unto them, I live, an affirmation of Jehovah. If as ye have spoken in mine ears, so I do not to you. The Hebrew verses 27 and 28 contain exciting literary devices which are intended to convey emotion to the ears and to the minds of those who hear them, including us. Next, to explain his words of what he intends to do, the Lord says, verse 29, The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness, all of you who are numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above. The sentence is pronounced, and it applies, as it says, to all who are numbered in the wilderness. It then further defines them as from those 20 years old and above. And because of this, scholars go to extremes certainly not intended by the text. They say that because the Levites were not mentioned in that census, they are not included in this counting. They say this is certain because Eliezer, Aaron's son, is specifically mentioned as having entered into Canaan. Such conclusions are wholly unnecessary. First, none of the women were counted in the census. And yet in verse 14:1, it says that the whole congregation lifted up their voices and wept. Unless it is speaking of a congregation full of sissy men who wept and hardy women who didn't, then the sentence falls upon the women as well as the men. Secondly, the term the generation of the men of war is stated in Deuteronomy 2 verse 14 and again in Joshua 5 verse 4. It is simply an all-inclusive statement of those who are 20 and above. This is certain because the tribe of Levi is counted in the second census of Numbers 26. After their counting, it says these words, But among these there was not a man of those who were numbered by Moses and Aaron the priest when they numbered the children of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, They shall surely die in the wilderness. So there was not left a man of them except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. And thirdly, there's no reason to assume that Eliezer was over 20 years old. His two older brothers were dead, and he and Ithamar could well have been under 20 years of age. The tenor of everything written beyond this implies that the sentence was pronounced upon everyone, 20 and above, except Joshua and Caleb. There is no reason to assume that it is not an all-inclusive statement. Nothing is lost either way, however. Verse 30, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. The exception of both Caleb and Joshua is explicitly stated now. And more, just as it is probable that the Levites' wives were included in the previous statement, 
it is just as likely that if these men were married, their wives would be granted the same promise as they. These things can only be assumed, and there is no reason to get overly dogmatic about them. But these things seem logical assumptions. The land of Canaan is the promised inheritance and rest. In type, then, it is where those of faith will go. As Caleb and Joshua are singled out, it seems obvious that they are being used here as types of those who would enter that place of rest. Caleb would be those Gentiles, and I explained this in a previous sermon. He is a descendant of the Kenizzites, and so he represents the Gentiles. He would be those Gentiles who are of faith and who received the promise. Joshua would be those Jews who are of faith and who received the promise. This is just typology. The promise is made, and it reflects the notion of entering into the inheritance based on one's faith in the promise of the Lord. As for Canaan, the next words would then retreat back to the promise of Israel in the flesh, not a type of those who are saved through age or innocence. Verse 31, but your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. Once again, the words of the people are repeated from verse 14.3. However, there it said, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? There it mentioned the wives, but now it only mentions the tough or little ones. It is another indication that all those 20 and above are included in the judgment, women as well as men. And so likewise, the term tough or little ones is extended to all who are 19 and below. As we saw, that comes from the word tafaf, which signifies to trip or to take little steps, and thus it's a small child. Whereas the people were implying that the Lord was lacking compassion on those who were most helpless, the Lord is showing abundant mercy on those who are even close to full maturity by extending the promise to those even up to 19 years of age. For the rest, verse 32, but as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. Upigrechem atem, and your carcasses, you. The stress is lost in most translations. The idea is dead bodies will litter the land and they will be you. After speaking out his exceptions, who will enter? The utterance of verse 29 is again spoken. The wilderness will consume all those who are 20 and above. They would fall and there they would lie. Exactly as they had spoken with their own mouths in verse 2. Verse 33, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years. The period of 40 years is actually inclusive of the time already spent in the wilderness. God is being gracious. Joshua 5.10 says this, Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. That was the 41st year and the same week as they entered Canaan. Thus, it was 40 years to the day from the first Passover until they ate of the produce of the land of Canaan. It is during all of this time that the sons of the faithless generation would feed their flocks in the wilderness. And again, the term sons is used as an all-inclusive statement to indicate all those 19 and below, both male and female. As before, there is no reason to assume any exceptions were made for those 20 and above beyond Caleb and Joshua and maybe wives if they had them. Verse 33 continues, And bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. The word here is a new one, zenut. It is a noun which will be seen nine times. It indicates harlotry or whoredom. 
The people were unfaithful to the Lord, just as a harlot is unfaithful to her husband. And their actions led to a truth that escapes many people, which is that the children will bear the brunt of their parents' actions. People ask if it's fair that the children should suffer for the parents' actions. Anybody? The answer is yes. It is not the Lord who punishes the children. It is that the children, by virtue of being a part of the family, receive the burden of the parents' actions. A simple example would be a person that kills someone else. He is caught. He's tried. He's convicted of murder. If he had children, they will receive the brunt of the parents' actions. They will be fatherless, maybe poor, and so on. To say it's unfair would mean that the father could not be punished at all. But that would be unjust to the society, and it would be unjust to the family who lost their own loved one. People ask if it's unfair concerning Israel, all that's come upon them for rejecting Christ Jesus. It is exactly the same premise as we see here. There is nothing unfair about it. And any Jew who wants to not be a part of that collective punishment needs to simply call out to receive Jesus and be saved by him. But the parents have taught the children for 2,000 years that Jesus is bad. The punishment has been a self-inflicted one, and it has been one that has been passed on to the children through the parents. It is not God's fault, but theirs, as seen very clearly in Leviticus chapter 26. We talked about that in detail when we were back there. Another point that we are to learn here that is obvious from what we have seen is that Caleb and Joshua are used as types of those who enter God's promised rest by faith, but the children are not. When they enter into Canaan, they are not being used in that typology. Rather, they are carrying on the story and the history of Israel in the flesh. The reason that we know this is true is because it comes from the New Testament. In the book of Hebrews, it says this, For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterwards spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, just as God did from his. Joshua did bring Israel, those 19 and younger at this time, into Canaan. However, the author of Hebrews notes that he did not give those who entered with him rest. Rest, meaning God's promised rest, is obtained by faith in the Lord. Caleb and Joshua demonstrated faith, and they are typical of those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Israel did not enter their rest, of which Canaan is typical, because they did not believe. Therefore, those who do enter Canaan in 40 years are simply Israel of the flesh living out their history. The reason this is important to understand is so that we do not err in making a theological point about salvation of people of a certain age based on these verses here. It's something which is rather common for people to do. It is the punishment upon the faithless and the bearing of the burden of the children during these 40 years, which are typical of Israel's punishment for rejecting Christ Jesus. Verse 34, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years. A day for a year is given. The spies were in Canaan 40 days, and the punishment will be upon Israel for 40 years. This will be repeated in Ezekiel chapter 4, where a punishment will be a day for a year. And I'll stop right now, and I'll tell you that that prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 4 points directly to the reestablishment of Israel as a nation on 14 May of 1948, and also the recapture of Jerusalem by the Jews on 6 June of 1967. It is 
specific what happened, and that prophecy was fulfilled to the day. The same year-for-day pattern will also be the time allotted for Christ as the sign of Jonah to Israel. Jonah proclaimed, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jesus said that that would be a sign to Israel of their own coming punishment. 40 years after his ministry began, the Romans destroyed the temple and exiled Israel. The sign of Jonah is not the time of Jonah in the fish for three days and three nights. That is a misinterpretation of that. The sign of Jonah is explicitly stated by Luke that it is the preaching of Jonah, and the preaching was, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. A day for a year. A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed, and Israel was exiled. Verse 34 continues, and you shall know my rejection. Here is a word found only twice in the Bible, teunah. It is derived from nu, which signifies to hinder or to frustrate. Thus, it is a turning away of the Lord from the people, a rejection or even an act of working against them. What is being said here is, you have rejected me, I know what it is like, and now it's time for you to find out what it's like when I reject you. Here we can see, once again, Israel in their dispersion. The Lord rejected them, and he has even worked against them exactly as he prophesied in Leviticus chapter 26. Verse 35, I, the Lord, have spoken. Ani Yehovah debarti. I, Yehovah, have spoken. There is no chance of these words failing. What he has uttered in an oracle will surely come to pass. Verse 35 continues, I will surely do to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. The people are called an evil congregation once again. They had complained against Moses and Aaron, and thus they had complained against the Lord. They were to be cut off, be finished off, and die in the wilderness. The sentence is pronounced, and the judgment will be rendered. The Lord Jehovah has spoken. And as a note of surety that this is picturing a rejection of Jesus Christ, Peter says the exact same thing to Israel in Acts 2, verse 40. Be saved from this perverse generation, which the CEV says be saved from this evil generation. It's exactly the same pattern showing us what God was going to do back in the book of Numbers, what he actually did in the Jewish people when they rejected Jesus Christ. Verse 36, Now the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report of the land, the ten men of the company who went into Canaan are now singled out. They had gone under orders to give a report on the state of the land, not to give a report on whether the land could be subdued or not. The Lord had already told them that he would go before them. Their bad report of the land was based on the greatness of the inhabitants in relation to the people of Israel. But the Lord is their leader. It was a bad report against the greatness of the Lord. In order to prove to the people that what he had said to them about their coming to an end was true, he would make these ten men an object lesson. Verse 37, those very men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord. The word is magephah. It was used by the Lord when he spoke to Pharaoh through Moses in Exodus 9, verse 14. A sudden striking of the men by plague came upon them. Had this actually been because of something they caught or something they ate in the land of Canaan? No. Verse 38, but Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive of the men who went to spy out the land. 
The truly remarkable aspect is not that the 10 spies had died, but that it did not happen to Caleb and Joshua. In other words, if they all died, it could be interpreted that they all picked up a disease in Canaan which killed them all. Thus, it would mean staying out of Canaan was a great idea. However, in the death of the 10 miscreants and the health of the two faithful, it was a true sign that their punishment was of the Lord. It was then a further sign to Israel that they would, in fact, die in the wilderness. In his commentary of this verse, Adam Clark, whether intentionally or unintentionally, ties the taking of Canaan into the giving of the gospel. He says, let preachers of God's word take heed how they straighten the way of salvation or render by unjust description, that way perplexed and difficult, which God has made plain and easy. In other words, Canaan was to be God's place of rest for the people. Jesus is God's place of rest for us. We have a hugely simple gospel message. It is so simple that Paul actually calls it a stumbling block because people trip right over it. God made the path to Canaan plain and easy. Follow me and you will enter into your rest. God has made the gospel equally easy. Follow me and you will enter your rest. Woe to the one who gives a false report about the simplicity and surety of what God has offered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a side point in this verse, Joshua is named first before Caleb. However, in verse 30, Caleb was named first. And in verse 24, Caleb was the only one named. If Caleb is representing the Gentiles here, as I suggest, it is a clue to the primary belief of the Gentiles in Christ in verses 24 and 30, but that the original faith in Christ went to the Jew first, as is seen in this verse. That may not be the intent at all, but it does match the pattern in history. Choose life. This is what I ask of you. Trust in the Lord and place him as your highest delight. Have faith in him and to his word be true, and all things will work out well. Everything will be all right. Don't complain against the Lord when trials come. Trust that he already knew they would come your way. Be blinded to the trials. To them, let your mind be numb. Simply trust the Lord in every word that he does say. Choose life. This is what I would ask of you. Give God the glory and pursue him all of your days. Have faith in him and to his word be true and be sure to give him his due. Give to him all of your praise. Our second thought today is up to the mountaintop, verses 39 through 45. Verse 39, then Moses told these words to all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. There is a sorrow for sin, and there is a sorrow for the punishment of sin. The two are not the same, and the latter does not always correct the former. The people were greatly sorrowed when Moses told them the Lord's verdict upon them, but they were not sorrowful for what they had done. This is painfully evident in the rest of the account. A person can have an affair outside of their marriage and get caught. The verdict is divorce and a loss of a ton of money and possessions. The person can be sorrowful over that and still not care at all about the reason for it. A person can kill someone else and be convicted for it with 40 years in the pokey. He can be sorrowful about the loss of freedom and not care one iota about the person he killed. Until our sorrow over our sins meets up with the punishment that we receive from those sins, we will never have a desire to truly be obedient to the Lord. Such is the case with the congregation right now. Verse 40, And they rose early in the morning and went up to the top of the mountain, saying, Here we are, 
and we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. Here it shows their eagerness to not be punished. They had mourned over the verdict which was pronounced, and they probably thought that their mourning was sufficient to appease the Lord's wrath and get him back into forward motion. And so it says they went up to the top of the mountain. What is probably the case here is that verse 40 actually follows chronologically after verse 44. This is because they are told to not go up in verse 42, and they actually went up in verse 44. This is seen in the words of Deuteronomy 1. Each sermon that we have done in these three sermons, we've had to go to Deuteronomy 1 to figure out what's going on. Here's what it says. Then you answered and said to me, we have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And when every one of you had girded on his weapons of war, you were ready to go up into the mountain. And the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up or fight for I am not among you, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, yet you would not listen, but rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the mountain. Here in Numbers, in order to show their utter stupidity, verse 40 is given now. First, they bring in the Lord again with the words, to the place which the Lord has promised. That promise remains, but not for them. They have a new promise. They rejected the first. He will not reject the second. The ironic words, for we have sinned, shows the lack of clarity in their thinking. They sinned at first, and now they are sinning again, as is revealed to them in the words of verse 41. And Moses said, now why do you transgress the command of the Lord? For this will not succeed. Now, while we're reading these verses, I want you all to think of yourself and your interactions with the Lord, because as I said a couple sermons ago, this is what we're seeing, our own rebellion against the Lord and how he deals with us. Israel's just a picture of that. That's all that we're getting is pictures and typology. The Hebrew here says, why this? You pass by the mouth of Jehovah. The Lord first gave a command to Moses in verse 25 that on this very morning, they were to turn and move out into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. In connection with this command, he has spoken out a sentence upon the people, but they were not willing to accept that punishment. They are simply passing it by, ignoring it, and determining their own path. However, Moses tells them that such a path will not be successful. What is said should be sufficient to end the matter, but to ensure they understand, he continues, verse 42, do not go up lest you be defeated by your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. Verse 25 noted that the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwelt in the valley. Once the people came down from the mountain, they would face those foes. If the Lord was among them, their victory in battle would be absolutely 100% surely guaranteed. Without him, their own defeat was certain. Moses implores them to follow the word of the Lord again, warning them. Verse 43, for the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you and you shall fall by the sword. This tells what has already been seen in verse 25. It was an ominous warning that danger lay ahead, and the only acceptable choice was to turn away into the wilderness, following the Lord's command. If they chose otherwise, death was certain. This was, verse 43 continues, because you have turned away from the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. Before, the Lord was with them, and they thought they could do nothing. Now the Lord is not with them, but they are intended to accomplish all things without him. This is certain because Moses tells them that if they go, they will go alone. Verse 44, but they presume to go up to the mountaintop. Is anybody clued into what's being pictured here yet? You'll find out in a couple minutes. Verse 44, but they presume to go up to the mountaintop. 
Here is another new and rare word, a fall. It signifies to swell, and thus it indicates pride. It is only seen again in Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Here's what it says. Behold the proud, that word, a fall. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. That is cited by Paul in Romans 1, verse 17, and Galatians 3, verse 11. This word reveals the intent of the entire passage that we have been looking at and that we are looking at. This verse now is where verse 41 follows chronologically. The word presumed is expanded on by the words, here we are, and we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. They acknowledged their sin of unbelief, but replaced it with the sin of presumption, of entering into the promise by their own effort. However, entry is not by the will nor by the work of man. Rather, it is by faith in the Lord and by nothing else. Is everybody starting to clue in what's being seen? Yes. Verse 44 continues. Nevertheless, neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed from the camp. Here for the second and last time in the book of Numbers, it is called the ark of the covenant of Jehovah. This is because of its purpose and intent for the people of Israel. It is the Lord who goes before his people in covenant faithfulness, which is in accord with the covenant between them. In this, he goes forth first, or he does not go at all. The ark signifies the presence of the Lord in covenant relationship with them that no longer exists. But even before the ark was made, the people went into battle and were victorious when Moses held up the rod of God. That was in Exodus 17. It was a picture of Jesus Christ, if you remember that. Moses is mentioned in this verse as not departing to specifically show that Christ is not among those who went. He was not in covenant relationship with them, nor was he visibly among them any longer. Keep thinking of Israel rejecting Jesus Christ, and everything that you're seeing is pointing to this time in history right now. Verse 45 finishes, and also I want you to remember that we have gone through about 12 sermons, and they have followed precisely the work of Jesus Christ leading to what occurred during that time, after that time, and now the dispersion of Israel. Each of those sermons has been given to show us a snapshot of redemptive history. Verse 45 finishes with, Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who dwelt in that mountain came down and attacked them and drove them all the way back as far as Hormala. Here, what was said was going to happen is exactly what came about. The foes who dwelt there came down and struck them. The final words say, Ve'yaketum ad ha and crushed them as far as the korma. Korma comes from the word haram. It means to make accursed or utterly destroy. Thus, the korma is that which is devoted to destruction. This is the only time that ha or the korma, with the article before it, is mentioned anywhere in scripture. The passage is obvious. The people had failed to accept the Lord at his word. Think of accepting Jesus, okay? And they were given their sentence because of it. They were to die in the wilderness. That is what happened to Israel after rejecting the Lord Jesus. However, there is a group of people who rejected the Lord, but who presumed to take action into their own hands. They went from the sin of disbelief to the sin of presumption. It is a sin which continues on to this day in certain circles. The first part of the passage from verse 26 through 38 dealt with the entire group, Israel, having failed to come to Jesus Christ. 
the second part from verses 39 through 45 dealt with that portion of people who acknowledged that they had erred, but instead of accepting the word of the Lord as it is given, added in the sin of pride, only compounding their guilt. This is reflected in the two people groups who were mentioned, the Amalekites and the Canaanites. Amalek has consistently been seen as picturing the Judaizers. They are those who wring off the head from the body. To brush up on that, go back and watch the first sermon that they were mentioned in Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. The Canaanites are those who bring the body into subjection. Both Amalek and Canaan, then, are those who pull others away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. The passage here is what the book of Galatians is specifically written about, but which is revealed in many parts of Paul's writings. It speaks of the Judaizers, those who say they were wrong about the Lord, but who then continue to reject that same Lord by reinserting the law of Moses as a means of climbing the mountain to its peak. False teachers seen in the Amalekites come in and take those who would otherwise follow the Lord and they pull them away to destruction. Said otherwise, they attempt to ascend to God through their own efforts. It is they who Paul speaks of in Galatians chapter 1. Here's what he says. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. These people had rejected the truth of the gospel, and then they came with another gospel, a false one. As Paul says, such are accursed. The word Paul uses there is the Greek word anathema. Guess what? It carries the exact same meaning as haram, a thing accursed and thus devoted to destruction. The second group, the Canaanites, would be the Jews of Israel who formed the Talmud, bringing the people into subjection. Thus, the place here is called ha-haremah, or the destruction. The pattern is established. Paul filled in the blanks about 1,500 years later. The Jews rejected Jesus Christ, but some seemingly accepted him after that. However, it was under false pretenses. They came in not to exalt God, but themselves through works of the law and their own effort. That continues on today in the Hebrew Roots Movement and many, not all, but many Messianic churches which teach adherence to the law of Moses. And yet, neither the New Covenant, which is found in Christ, nor Christ himself is among them. They are accursed because they pursue a false message of personal works leading to salvation. And this is true in countless other churches as well. Anytime someone promotes the law of Moses, circumcision, the Sabbath, the feasts of the Lord, or adherence to any other type or shadow from the old covenant, including giving up bacon, they pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. Indeed, they shall be crushed and the ban shall remain on them unto destruction. This is the continuing, I mean the continuing, ongoing message of Scripture. God has given us a way which is plain and easy. He has done the work, and he has invited us to simply follow in his grace. No other way is acceptable. Come to Jesus and be saved by his grace and follow in his steps to the land of promise, which lies at the top of the mountain where God dwells. 
The point of what we saw today was this. Jesus Christ accomplished the work for us. If we say, I need to do something that Christ fulfilled when he was hanging on the cross, what did he say in the book of John, chapter 19? It is finished. He was speaking of the law of Moses. The burden, the yoke which was placed upon the people was completed in him. He fulfilled that. Let's take a quick moment and go to the book of Hebrews. I'll take you to Hebrews chapter 7 first. I read these to you when we were going through the, uh, whoops, went too far. When we were going through the uh, Leviticus sermons, we're going to go there again. Hebrews chapter 7, it says, And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive. Oh, I don't want that one. I want this one. Verse 12. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. There's a priesthood, we have a new high priest, and therefore there is a change of the law. And then in verse 18, he says, For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment. That is the law of Moses. Annulled means done. done. Thank you. Because of its weakness and unprofitableness. If you remember the story of Jacob and the wives he got, he got the first wife who he didn't want was named Leah. And what did it focus on on Leah? Her weak eyes. It was the weakness of the law of Moses. It was unprofitable. And what did it focus on in the second wife that he wanted? Rachel, her beauty, her grace, the law and grace. Then we go to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13 and that he says a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. That means you've got to keep observing it, right? No, it means it's done. It is over. It is finished. Chapter 10, Verse 9, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. Oh God, this is Jesus coming to do his will and die in fulfillment of the law. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. Jesus Christ died so that we would not be under the law. And Paul writes vehemently against the Judaizers. Stay away from these things. He even says one more verse, Colossians chapter 2. I'll take you there. He says in Colossians chapter 2, and you get to verse 14. And he says this, Ephesians, Colossians 2, having wiped out the handwriting, he's speaking of the law of Moses, wiped it out, the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Nobody went up to a cross in Jerusalem and nailed the law of Moses to that cross. That didn't happen. They nailed the one who fulfilled that law on our behalf to the cross. And when he died, the law died in him. For everybody who is not in Christ, you're under that law. And you better observe it perfectly without violating one precept ever in your life. Impossible. Come to Christ. Be saved by him. That is what is again being pictured. We have been shown so many pictures of this since the book of Genesis that it is utterly astonishing. We saw it in the book of Leviticus. The law itself, the sacrificial law itself is showing us how utterly futile the law is. The man who does these things will live by them. And the rest of the Old Testament says that not one single person did those things because they're all dead. One came out of the grave and only one proving that he had fulfilled that law. Please come to Jesus Christ and put away your deeds of the law. Give your life to him and he will save you and he will save you forever. Not three ever or two ever, forever, okay? I got a closing verse for you here from Galatians chapter 5. Great book to be in when you're in the book of Numbers is Galatians. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty 
by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. He called the law a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. It is a self-condemning act, which we saw in this passage today. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. <sighs> Please come to Jesus. Next week, Numbers 15, 1 through 21. Pictures of Christ that are really quite grand. It's entitled, When You Have Come Into the Land. That'll be our 28th number sermon. And I'll remind you as I do each week that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you're lost in a desert, wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there and he's carefully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? I got a uh, question for you. I try to stump you every week. Here we go. Paul uses the term accursed or anathema three times in his epistles. We saw one of them today. Can somebody tell me, apart from three times other than Galatians chapter 1, he uses the word anathema. Can anybody tell me one of those three times that he uses the word anathema? To be accursed. I knew I'd get you on that. Okay, I'm going to take you first to Romans. No, that's Greek. Anathema is Greek. Romans, I'm going to take you to chapter 9. This is a heartbreaking one here, folks. Verse 3. For I wish that I myself were anathema, accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. He understood from the book of Numbers what would happen to them. They weren't completely rejecting of him at that point, were they? They were, there were still Jews that were saved, and he traveled around with them, but he knew what was coming. I wish I were accursed, anathema, for my brethren. In 1 Corinthians 12, he says this. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus anathema, accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he uses it a third time in verse 22. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, accursed. O Lord, come. I got a poem for you and we'll be done. It's entitled, A Year for Each Day. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, these words to them he was then relaying. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who incessantly complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me constantly. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, my word is true. Just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who are numbered according to your entire number, from 20 years old and above, I make this address. Except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in, in such hopes for you are they are quashed and done. But your little ones, whom you said would be victims, so you I apprised, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, so to you I address, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. 
And your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, certainly no less, and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in this wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, I will hear no objection. For each day you shall bear your own guilt one year, namely forty years, and you shall know my rejection. I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do to all this evil congregation by and by who are gathered together against me in this wilderness. They shall be consumed, and there they shall die. Now the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report of the land, which then spread throughout the nation, those very men who brought this evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord, yes, by the Lord's own hand. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, as we so understand, remained alive of the men who went to spy out the land. Then Moses told these words to all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. For them, things weren't going so well. Then they rose early in the morning and went up to the top of the mountain, saying, here we are, and we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned, but now our debt we are repaying. And Moses said, Now why do you transgress the command of the Lord? For this will not succeed. It is contrary to his word. Do not go up, lest you be defeated by your enemies, I say, for the Lord is not among you, and you will be defeated this very day. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you shall fall by the sword, it is true, because you have turned away from the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the mountaintop. Nevertheless, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, nor Moses, departed from the camp. They disobeyed his spoken word. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who dwelt in that mountain came down and attacked them and drove them back as far as Hormah. Yes, they were beaten all the way to destruction town. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct, our lives would be a mess. And so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply. Then we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the lesson of the Bible that Jesus Christ came and did everything for us that we could never do for ourselves. Thank you that you have proven yourself the most loving creator that would do such for us. We turned away from you in Eden. We've been turning away from you every day of our lives since. There's not a person here that has been fully faithful to you, even for a day. And yet you are merciful to us because of your great love for us. Thank you. How can such love be? How can it be? But we thank you that it is, and it's found in the person of Jesus and in the giving of his life for us. Thank you for that. We love you. We cherish you. We exalt you. Help us to be obedient to you by deeds of faith and lives of faith directed to you always. And we pray this, that you will be glorified and that we will be edified and built up in you. And we pray it in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen.